Since you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, as we continue the text that we left off from last week, I actually want to go back and and read that uh, previous portion of the text again uh, to continue to set the context. But Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 13 through 20. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13, excuse me, 13 through 20. If you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. You can be seated. As we look at our text this morning, I want you to consider these four ideas. The building the battle, the basis, and the bidding. The building, the battle, the basis, and the bidding. Inside of this text, we find really is what could be deemed a controversial or, or much um, argued about text. Uh, what we find inside of this text is a statement from Jesus that uh, has been battled over for uh, really countless hundreds of years about what does Jesus genuinely mean when He says here, in verse 18, that upon this rock I will build my church. What we find here in this passage really is an establishment of the church. We find an establishment of what Christ intended uh, His apostles to do, and outside of His apostles, what He intends us to do. So as we look at our lives as a 21st century church here in the United States, how are to we respond to the world? How are we to set our motivations and our mindset on what God has called us to do? And we find that, I believe, here inside of these three verses. As we begin, let's just remind ourselves of what's happening here. Jesus has left with His disciples, gone back out into the wilderness, spent some time with God the Father, praying, seeking His face, as He's really shortly making His way to Jerusalem and to His ultimate end in His death and crucifixion upon the cross. And He's attempting to prepare His disciples for the inevitable confusion that's going to come. Because even though over and over Jesus continues to teach them and tell them, it is God's purpose that I come, it's God's purpose that I live, but it's also God's purpose that I go and die on a cross, the disciples were still amazingly confused by this, amazingly obtuse to hearing and understanding what Jesus was saying. And again, it all goes back to this idea of in their mind, they genuinely believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter had just confessed it on behalf of all of them, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the fulfillment of everything that God has intended, the the perfect one, and not just the Son of a God, but the Son of the living God, God Almighty, Jehovah in heaven. You are His Son. So they understood and believed Jesus genuinely was the Messiah, but there was still this part in the back of the disciples' minds 
that at some point, Jesus' ministry was going to take this radical turn from one of humility and one of servanthood to one of power and authority, and he was going to establish a throne and a kingdom. They still, they couldn't get past it because this is what they had been told for generation after generation that the Messiah was going to come. But when he came, he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish Jerusalem again as a powerful kingdom here upon the earth. And so Jesus was doing everything he could to prepare the hearts of the disciples. And he knew the most important thing that the disciples needed not only to know in their minds, but also to confess with their mouth was who he genuinely was. He wanted that to be submitted in their hearts, that he was the Messiah. Because, listen, brothers and sisters, when we go through difficult seasons, the most important thing that we have that carries us through those times is our confession of Christ. It's our reliability and our, and our stronghold of knowing who Christ is. And being able to look back on that and know who Jesus is and know the power that he has, that was what was going to carry these 12 disciples through to the very end. So they make this bold confession, and, and Jesus tells them there in the end of verse 17 that what they have now, what they possess in this confession of Christ was not something that they obtained upon their own. It was not something that they were able to do by themselves, but it was something that had only been given to them by God himself. This confession of faith, our confession of faith, our salvation is not something that we earn. It's not something that we um, uh, receive from a, from a family lineage. It's not something that we get just because we go to church. If you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Him, and you are saved, that's only a gift of God into your life that He has given you. So as we look at this text this morning, in verse 18, after they have confessed this, and again, remember, Peter is speaking, he's the only one pictured speaking, but he's speaking on behalf of the 12 apostles. And we see this continued out uh, through in the book of Matthew and even into the book of Acts. Peter kind of rises to the top as a as a chief among equals uh, inside the apostles, and he's the one who tends to speak upon their behalf. He pretends to be the one who steps out and makes these bold proclamations. So here, as he speaks on behalf of the apostles, notice what Jesus turns and says to him. So I want you to notice here first the building that God is doing, the building. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So there's two words here used that both mean rock. And the first word is Petros, and that's Peter's name. It means rock. Uh, Jesus had given him this name. Really kind of, it, it seems to be a conundrum, right? Because you think about rock as something rigid and solid. And we look at Peter's life, especially before the crucifixion of Jesus, we find him to not be all that solid from time to time. He tends to have this up and down emotional volatility. Uh, where he, he's really bold in one moment and then he steps back the next. And that's most pictured perfectly uh, there at the crucifixion of Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter said, Lord, may it never be. I, I would never. I, and then Jesus says, you'll deny me three times. And Peter in his mind is saying, Lord, this will never going to happen. There's no way that I would ever deny my Lord and Savior. And yet what happens? Before the rooster crows, he denies Jesus three times. It's almost in a sense that Jesus is giving, had given Peter this name, this idea of the rock, and, and, and foretelling about who Peter was going to become. Because as we get into the book of Acts, very early on, as beginning as with Acts chapter 2, we find Peter standing up and more boldly and powerfully than any other, perhaps any other apostle had before, proclaiming the truth of God's word in the face of confrontation, in the face of adversity, Peter is, has become the rock. But again, there's two words here, Peter 
which is Petros, which is a small rock. And then he says, upon this Petra, which is a large rock, a mountain. It's just a, a very stark comparison here from a small rock to a large rock. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, what we're talking about here is the foundation, the establishment of the New Testament church, not specifically just the New Testament church we find in the book of Acts, but broadly just the, the entirety of the established church from the New Testament till today, what Jesus is building upon and establishing the gospel proclamation into the world by using his church. Now, again, as I said earlier, there's a lot of disagreement about what this text means. When he says, upon this rock I will build my church, a lot of people want to say, well, he's talking about a number of things. And I'm going to try to cover as many of them as I can, but we don't have time to dig into all of them. Uh, But we'll kind of look at those uh, very specifically and then come back to the one that we believe uh, is more uh, proper interpretation of this text. Uh, Some people believe uh, that... What God is, what Jesus is doing here is establishing Peter as the head of the church, and thus by doing that is establishing him as the head of the papal line inside the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church would teach that Peter was the first pope, and that out of that, through the lineage of faith, that people follow in his lineage, and that's where the line of the popes comes from. So Jesus was establishing Peter as the head of the church, as the head of Christianity, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. Some people believe that when Jesus says this, but he's talking about building it upon himself. He says, upon you are Peter the small rock, and I will build this upon Jesus as the rock of the church. There's also some who say that when uh, uh, Jesus speaks this, that he's speaking of the confession that Peter made. And Peter made this confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, upon this bold, this stalwart confession that you have made, that's what I will build my church upon. And then the last interpretation of this is that he is actually is speaking to Peter, saying, Peter, I will build this foundation upon you, but not in the context as the Catholic Church would look at it as the lineage of the Pope or as the lineage of that line. So now I want to go back and just look at those for a few things because it's important to understand the variety of interpretations there and the reasons why we don't adhere to some of those interpretations. Uh, The first one would be the Catholic interpretation. Uh, The ones who would say that this was establishing Peter as the first pope and that following after him is the lineage of Catholicism down through the years. Because the Catholic Church would teach because of this succession of papacy, um, that the Pope has this, is he is able to speak what they would call ex cathedra, that he speaks on behalf of God. And when the Pope is speaking in that manner ex cathedra, that what he says actually is on the same level as Scripture. And so they say that because Jesus here says that upon this rock, upon you, Peter, I will build my church, that he was establishing Peter as the very head of the church. There's a couple of reasons why we would not hold to that. The first off of being is what we find in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 20, where it says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And we'll come back to that text in just a moment. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the true foundation of the church. He, as the Scripture tells us, is the head of the church. But there's a couple of other interesting passages that we can look at that follow up this encounter that helps us to understand that this is not what Jesus was doing at all. He was not saying that Peter was the greatest apostle. He was not establishing Peter as the pope. He was not establishing Peter as the head of the church. Uh, One of the easiest ways to look at that is when we come to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, this scripture tells us that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her son. So this is James and John, and bowing down made a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right 
and one on your left. And so the disciples were witness to this. In fact, because Mark chapter 10 tells us that they came up to Jesus and he, and he asked this. He says, grant us that we may sit one on your right and one on your left. So if James and John are asking Jesus that they would be the greatest in the kingdom, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that at no point in time has Jesus established who would be the greatest in the kingdom. If earlier here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus already said, Peter, you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm building everything on you. James and John would not have come to Jesus later on to say, well, we want to be the greatest in the kingdom because it wouldn't have made sense. So we understand here that Jesus in no way has established Peter as this pivotal point, as this head of the church. Peter himself, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, and as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, um, a partaker of those things are to be revealed, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So Peter has given this instruction and calls himself a fellow elder. Now, if Jesus had established Peter in this hierarchical position, he would not have called himself a fellow elder. He would have alluded to this position. He would have alluded to this place that Jesus had put him in. And then he even goes further to say that as elders in the church, he says, you're not to lord it over anyone else. He's talking about his humility and humbleness to say that I'm just like everybody else. I've been called by God to serve as an elder in the church. I'm no better than anybody else. I'm no more powerful than anybody else. The only thing I have is the calling that God has given to each one of us as he calls calls us to serve him in this position. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, it says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we understand this very clearly, that that argument goes out the door. Jesus here is not establishing the papal line. He's not establishing Peter as the first pope. But then the question is, well, what is he talking about? Well, we believe, or I believe in studying through this text, I had always grown up um, under the understanding here that Jesus was talking specifically about the confession that Peter was making. In Baptist circles, that's always been the interpretation growing up, that Jesus was specifically talking about the, interpret- the confession that Peter made, that upon this rock I will build my church. So Pastor Ben and I, and, and even Pastor West, we've been talking about this over the last little bit, and I mentioned it to them the other day. I said, you know, it's interesting as I've studied through this text, that that's, that's not the consensus agreement uh, throughout the history of time. And it seems what has happened is as time has gone on, and specifically in Baptist circles, because of their opposition of many of the teachings of, of the Catholic Church, they said, well, we're going to move as far away from we can of this idea of Peter anywhere being involved in this establishment to the far side over here. Now, again, the interpretation of that confession being a part of it, I believe, is a valid part of what Jesus is saying, but I believe it goes even further than that. So what we see happening here, because Jesus does very specifically say, Peter, upon this rock, using those two terms, Petros and Petros, I will build my church. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus here is speaking to Peter, but again, remember, Peter is speaking on behalf of the entirety of the apostle group. All 12 guys are there, and Peter's speaking on their behalf. So it's very easy to understand that as Jesus responds back, he's responding to Peter, but he's also speaking to the collective gathering of the apostles. And what Jesus is saying, he says, you are this small rock, but upon the rock of the apostolic group, I'm going to build my church. Now we can understand that because we can go to um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. 
And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 speaks of this idea. It says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, it says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb. Now, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and the Scripture tells us that off of that cornerstone, the foundation of the church that is laid is the twelve apostles. Now, think about this. Now, a lot of us, we, we actually talked about this in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, because most of us aren't familiar with the proper use of a cornerstone in building. Uh, now, if you go outside this building out here, there's a cornerstone out there, right? They use usually on, even on modern buildings, they'll put a cornerstone somewhere and it'll have the name of the building and when it was erected, all those kinds of things. But in the sense of the way we use a cornerstone today is not in the sense of how they used a cornerstone in the New Testament. Back then, they didn't have computers, they didn't have technology in order to be able to ensure that the building was straight. So what they would do is they would have this perfectly cut square stone and it was the very first thing that was laid as the building. And they would put that building perfectly in place, that rock perfectly in place, and made sure it was level on all sides. And then everything that was built off of that building could come off of that cornerstone. So if you pulled a line this way, you knew it would be perfectly level. And when you pulled a line this way, you knew it would be perfectly level. And if you pulled a line straight up, you knew it would be perfectly level. So the emphasis here, as we understand, is that Jesus Christ is established as the cornerstone of the church, and off of that cornerstone, the twelve apostles are laid out there as the foundation of the church. And we understand this when Peter speaks to this group. He's not just talking about them as individuals as if they were anything special. He's not saying that they were more important than anybody else, but what he's talking about is what he has given them that in order to establish them as the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ has given them this confession. He has given them this doctrine that enables them to lay the foundation of the church and establish them as that foundation. Because he's going to talk about this idea in, in verse 19 of this doctrine that he has given to them and how they are to use this, this power, use this authority that he has given to the apostles here immediately in the New Testament, which will be passed down from generation to generation through the church and through its leadership and through its followers. Uh, John MacArthur said, The foundation of the church is the revelation of God given through his apostles, and the Lord of the church is the cornerstone of that foundation. So this confession that Peter has confessed is the doctrine upon which this foundation that the apostles had is built upon. So when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, he's talking about you as the 12 apostles have this doctrine, have this faith, have this truth, have this confession, and upon that, I'm going to build my church. Now, it's interesting to look at what Jesus says there. So now we have this idea of the understanding of this truth, of this doctrine, but notice what Jesus says. He says, I will build my church. So we move from this sure and solid foundation on Christ to now looking at this chief cornerstone. This, he says, I will build my church. And I think this is important for us to remember because Jesus is saying this. So we're understanding that he's going to accomplish whatever he says he's going to do. And this idea is not that he's just starting to build his church, because we look throughout the Old Testament, God had established his people, had established truth throughout the Old Testament and longing for and looking for the Messiah. Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to what Jesus was going to come and to accomplish. So it's this idea of to continue building. 
Because we're tempted to think in this world, and I, and I speak mostly of uh, oftentimes of, of pastors, we're tempted to think like this, but I think even church members can think this way as well, that we think that we are the ones that build the church. That through our eloquent leadership or through our, our excellent decision making or through our uh, attempts to reach out to people in the community, that we're the ones that build the church. But brothers and sisters, we don't build the church. Christ builds his church. Now, he may use us to build his church, but we're not the one accomplishing that. That's the reason why you can see uh, groups of people doing all kinds of things and a church may never grow, but it's only when God chooses to bless a congregation and chooses to work in the midst of it that that church will grow and do anything. You could have the greatest minds in the world. Now listen, I promise you, you go online. I used to say you could go to the Christian bookstore, but those don't exist anymore. So you go online and you look up the greatest church leadership books. There's no shortage of books that are going to tell you how to grow your church. But I promise you, you could read all of those books and you could put all of those principles into practice. And if God does not choose to bless that church, that church is not going to grow. That church will not do anything more. It might attract people. It might grow a crowd. But as far as being a genuine church of faith, serving the Lord, that church is never going to grow. The encouraging thing also about this passage, he says, I will build it. But notice whose church he says it is. He says, it's my church. This church doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to Pastor Wes. It doesn't belong to Pastor Ben. It doesn't belong to any of us. This church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. I always shudder. I, I, at times in my life and throughout the course of my life in ministry, have been places, and I've heard people stand up and make this statement, well, that will never happen in my church. Or, this is my church. Not in the sense of just saying, I have my membership there, but in the sense of them thinking that this is their church. And that's a dangerous mindset to have. That's a dangerous place to be because this church totally and completely belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word church there means ecclesia. It's just a called out assembly. And, and, and we use that term when we reference it today. Oftentimes the term ecclesia just refers to the idea of a Christian church. But when Jesus was using this phrase, that's really all it meant was just a called out group of people. Uh, so it, you would have called, used the word ecclesia to talk about a gathering of people in the town square or a gathering people uh, uh, in, in, out in the countryside. But it specifically means a called out people who are called for a specific purpose. So it perfectly applies to the church in a modern day because we are a people who have been called out of the world, called into a specific purpose, and that purpose is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So it's encouraging to look at this passage that says now that what we understand that what we are gathered here to do is that we are a people who have been called out by God for His purposes, for His plans. And because of what this confession of the apostles was given, this, uh, this confession of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, this is what we are built upon. We're built upon a solid foundation of truth, a solid foundation of who Jesus is and what God had called Him to do. So we see the building here. I want you to next notice the battle. Because this, this church is not without its difficulties in the sense of how we have to face the world. Notice what he says in the end of verse 18. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now the gates of Hades is the enemy identified. There's two things I want you to notice here in this passage. The enemy identified and the victory that is secured. This is another one of those passages that perhaps for many of us, we've grown up with this understanding of when Jesus said, oh, is that the gates of hell will be defeated. They will not overpower the church of Jesus Christ. 
This is an encouraging thing for us. We, we need to understand this, especially in light of, of the time in which we live. We can look around. We see that Christianity is becoming less and less popular every single day, and that the church is becoming more and more uh, uh, oppressed every single day, that more and more people are, 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 are offended by what the church proclaims. But we need to understand that no matter what this world throws against us, that the church will not be overthrown. We talked about the idea as a weapon, but there's also the idea in this text here. You think about gates. Gates are a defense mechanism, but what do gates also do? Gates also hold those who are behind there imprisoned. So when we think about those who are imprisoned by Satan and his demons, there's also this idea in this text that because the gates of hell will not have victory, that we are to go and we're proclaiming the truth of God's word and we are snatching those who Satan has in his power out of the kingdom of darkness. There's just this wonderful, beautiful promise here. Thirdly, the basis of this. And this is really what God has established the church to do here upon the earth. And there's a a lot to look at in this text. Because notice what he says. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is another one of those texts. It's very complicated, very confusing for a lot of people. What is Jesus talking about here with binding and loosing, with doing it on earth and doing it in heaven? Well, really what he talks about here, first off, let's start with the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom speaks to the idea of authority and power. If a servant was given the keys to the kingdom, what he's being bestowed upon is he has a prestige and a power to do one thing. What do you do with keys? You open things and you close things. So a servant was given the keys of the kingdom. He had the authority to open the gates to let people in, and he had the authority to close the gates to not let people in. So when we look at this in the context of the church, he's talking to Peter, talking to the apostles, talking to the establishment of the church, and saying that by the power of the preaching of the gospel, you have the authority to open up the kingdom of heaven to people to come. Now think about how powerful this is. That Jesus is saying that through the preaching of the gospel, he's given us this authority with the keys of the kingdom to open up the doors of the gospel and to proclaim whosoever will may come. But he's also saying that he's given us this authority that we can close the doors, that we shut those things out to those who would be unbelieving. Even Jesus himself said we're not to cast pearls before swine. So this idea that we have been given this power and authority to open up the doors of the gospel to all who would come. And we see even Peter himself establishing this in Acts chapter 2 as he stands up and for the very first time opens wide the doors of gospel proclamation there in the New Testament. And then we see later on in the book of Acts, he spreads that even further by moving from the Jews to a Gentile audience. And once again, opening up broadly the doors of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that by this, that we have been given the authority to proclaim and say that if someone says, I'm an atheist and I reject God, we have the ability by the power of Scripture to look at that person and say, well, then you're going to go to hell. Not based upon our own opinion, but based upon the truth of God's Word, based upon the authority He's given us. It says if somebody has that mindset, somebody has that proclamation, we know that that's what awaits them in the end. And also the converse is true. That if someone says, I have confessed my sins, repented, and put my trust in Jesus Christ, we can also look at that person and say, based upon your profession of faith, we can say that your sins are forgiven and that you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. 
That's not based upon what we're doing. It's based upon what the truth of God's Word has said about those types of confessions and that the church validates those things based upon the Word of God. One commentator said, The keys of the kingdom are still employed by church leaders who are committed to biblical truth and who precisely on that basis make judgments about persons beyond and within the church. So Jesus says he's given them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But then he goes on to talk about binding and loosening. Binding and loosing really just means it was an Old Testament, ter- uh, Old Testament phrase, and they would use it commonly in the New Testament, that actually just meant to allow something or to forbid something. So Jesus says, what you forbid on earth shall be forbidden in heaven, and what you allow on earth will be allowed in heaven. And it really speaks to the idea of what the apostles were commanded to do when it came to the church and the idea even of church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out church discipline. And I want you to listen to the phrasing and the words that Jesus uses here in this passage. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now listen. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Exact same phrase that Jesus uses here. Whatever you allow on earth will be allowed in heaven, and whatever you forbid on earth shall be forbidden in heaven. So Jesus here is speaking to the authority of God's word, that by the authority of God's word, we can declare what is acceptable to God and what is forbidden by God. Now, we don't determine that on our own, But we can look at what God's Word says is allowed, and we say those things are allowed. We can look at what God's Word says is forbidden, and we can say that those things are forbidden. And so then that means we also can look at one another's lives. And this is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 18. That if someone's life does not bear testimony of the work of Christ, or they have committed a sin that the Scripture is completely clear upon, that you should not do, the Scripture says first we're to go to that brother privately and urge them to repent. Say, brother, you, you've done wrong. You need to repent. You need to put your trust back in Christ. You need to ask God to forgive you for doing this sin. And hopefully, he says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not, he says, well, then go get two or three more people. And all three of you go and plead with him and say, brother, you need to repent. You have done wrong. You have sinned in the eyes of God according to the Scriptures. We're here on behalf of God to say to you that you have done what God has, has, has profoundly forbidden. And then he says that if, you, that if he does that, he says that it may be confirmed. He says if he refuses these to even to them, he says, tell it to the church. So that means the third step in this, if that brother still d- does not repent, then you bring it before the entire body of Christ. And then that church says we're to plead with them again to repent one more time. And listen to what Jesus says. Now, this is not Matthew. This is not Paul. This is Jesus himself. He says if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus says, if this brother, who has been confronted by his friend, been confronted by three friends, been confronted by the entirety of the church, he says, if this person refuses after those three situations to turn from what is clearly sin and to ask God to forgive him, Jesus says, you declare him as no longer a Christian. He is not saved. And brothers and sisters, that's, that's bold speak. In the Bible Belt, people would look at you like you're crazy when you talk about something like this. 
But this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, he's saying this person, by their own demonstration, has proclaimed that they are not genuinely a Christian. And it is your responsibility to live your life in such a way that they understand that. Now, what is the goal in this? The goal in this is not that we forget about that person. The goal is hopefully that if you're that strongly firm with this person, that hopefully they will realize the error of their ways and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ again, that they'll turn and have their sins forgiven. And that's why later on in John chapter 20, we find this. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It's this idea of the church has been established that we can look at somebody and say, listen, if you choose to live this way, then God has said this is the consequence of those sins. If you choose to refuse to repent from God and to continue to live in sin, the church has full-fledged authority to proclaim that you are not a Christian because of the demonstration of your life. So this is the basis of what God has established the kingdom for. God has established the church that we would hold one another accountable, that we would proclaim the truth of God's word. But listen, when we see this idea of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, it's not because God's saying that we want to be power hungry. Nobody enjoys having to go to a brother or sister in Christ and saying, listen, what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop. But we do it because we love one another. You know, growing up in the South, we understood uh, people would make the joke, you could be out in public and you could tell, people would say you could tell who doesn't doesn't, uh, discipline their children at home, right? Now, how many of you parents in the room enjoy having to discipline your children? Nobody. But you do it because you love them. You do it because you know that it instills in them right from wrong, good from bad, helping them to understand what's dangerous, what to stay away from. And it's the same thing inside the church. We do church discipline. We rebuke a brother in sin. We go to them and plead with them, not because we want power over them or to lord it over them, not because we hate them, but because we love them because we're concerned about them, because we desire to see them in a right place with God. So we've seen the building, we've seen the battle, we've seen the basis. This is what God has established the church to do, to have this firm resolve on this is what we're doing. We're to be obedient to the Word of God. If we're not established on the foundation of the, church, of the Word of God, then we've lost everything. We don't have anything to build upon. And the last thing that I want you to notice in this passage is the bidding. Now, this is just very quickly as we wrap up here. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this is confusing, isn't it, right? He's just told his disciples to, we're establishing this church. He's establishing this great kingdom. He's establishing this foundation upon which the gospel will be proclaimed. And then he turns around and says, And don't go tell anybody. And this is because it's just not time yet. Jesus knew that if his disciples went out with this proclamation, if they began to go tell people, this, this Jesus really is the Messiah. He knew the connotations of that, that the Jewish audience would automatically assume that it was time to put Jesus in position of power. He had already had to flee one time because they wanted to make him a king. And Jesus knew, guys, this is what you're going to be commanded to do, but the time just isn't right. You've got to wait. And as soon as I've gone to the cross, as soon as I've resurrected from the dead, then you take everything that I've given you and you go out into the world and you proclaim the truth of who I am. 
Brothers and sisters, this is what God has called us to do. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're a Christian because you have made this same confession that Peter has. Because this is how we become a Christian. We confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We put our trust in Him as the Messiah, as the promised Son of God. So we've made this bold confession. And if you've made this bold confession, then this same promise is established to us, that God has built this foundation of His church upon the confession of the apostles, upon the doctrine of truth, upon all of those who really have come after the apostles. And this church has been built upon this solid foundation and that we're called to continue laying upon it. We're called to continue the proclamation of the gospel. We're called to continue to do what God has called us to do. And the greatest promise for me, I think, as I read this this week, was this promise of Jesus in verse 18, that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I don't know about you, but I'm very tempted as I watch the news and I read Twitter or, or Facebook and I see all the things going on. It's very easy to get discouraged sometimes. It's very easy to get overwhelmed. It's very easy to start being fearful about what could happen or what might happen. But then I have to remind myself that what we're facing today is no different than what Christians faced 150 years ago. It's no different than what the Christians faced in the the New Testament. In fact, we were just reading in Sunday school this morning in Acts chapter uh, 4 there. You know, after Peter and John are arrested, they get let loose and they get sent back home and all the, the apostles and the Christians gather together and they pray and they reference uh, Psalm chapter 2 where it says, why do the heathens rage and the nations imagine vain things and all this. So they're, they're looking back and basically what they're saying is, God, we acknowledge that this is just what the world is going to be like. It was like this way in David's day. It's like this way in our day. And we're not going to be fearful of what the world has to throw on us. And then they said, God, just give us boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel in face of opposition. Brothers and sisters, that has to be our prayer. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We are on the offense fighting against the kingdom of hell, and it will not have the victory. And we just need to pray for God to give give us continual courage and power and passion to go forth and proclaim the truth of who He is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for what You have spoke Uh, To Peter and the apostles, Father, what you're also speaking to us, God, that you have called us to live our life in such a way as to proclaim your truth. And as we proclaim the truth, the church's foundation is continually built upon, continually established, and that, God, through that, this world is transformed, that the kingdom of hell continues to shrink backwards because of the forward fight of the church. Lord, help us to walk in victory. Help us to walk in courage. Lord, help us to walk in power to fight against the kingdom of hell, to fight against this world, and to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.